Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. Come sit with us in the honeyed light, among the ripe pomegranates, in Calliope's sanctuary, where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones, with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air, and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast sound editing is by Simon Linstead. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. And podcast music is by Yanis Linardakis. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Calliope's Sanctum. So I am reading part two of my novella, The Dark Country. So to hear more about this novella, just listen back to the previous episode from February 17th. As I mentioned in the introduction to that episode, there is mention of rape and violence in this novella. So for those of you that this is a trigger for, just wanting to warn you, it's not direct, but it is present in the context of the story. So I hope you enjoy part two of The Dark Country from Our Lady of the Dark Country, my collection of short stories and poems. Six. The night the men of Tar took Arati as a slave, she had been climbing the wall of the fortress called Kush to save the last wild caper that grew from its cracks. The fortress seemed to be part of the hilltop itself, extending its height. From the walls one could see clear across the foothills of Mount Enos to the southern coast, west across a bay to the ruling city of Crania, and north over seven valleys to the foothills of a smaller mountain called Kalo. It had been built by three generations of agate kings in their desert style, and the place was called Kush in their tongue. No force could invade Kephthira without being seen from the fortress. But the power of agate had waned. So it was that although they saw the soldiers of Tar on the horizon days before their attack, the men of agate could do little from their watchtowers to resist them. Surrender was altogether preferable to death. There was a very small village around the base of the fortress. When the soldiers came, they refrained from burning the cluster of houses and goat sheds, not out of any kindness for the residents, but because they wanted the dwellings for themselves. It was, after all, the most defensible place in all of southern Kephthira. 
Still, when R.T. saw the soldiers of Agate raise the white flag of surrender and heard the boots and shouts and shields and hooves of the men of Tar climbing the steep road to the fortress, she dragged her cedar chest of dowry linens out into her olive grove just in case they decided to set the houses on fire, as they had done elsewhere. It was the chest where she kept her grandmother's bone needles and pins, her lace-knotting hooks, her fine-spun bedclothes. A woman's power lay in that chest, and nowhere else. Once it had been otherwise. Long ago, so long ago that even Arati's grandmother's grandmother's stories contained only stray threads and hints and seams of that other way. Still, Arati had been collecting those pieces, each a tiny lost hymn of meaning, and knotting them away among her linens since her husband had died at the hands of Agate thirty years past, leaving her heartbroken and childless too. Corners of old tales, words fringed in power from a lost language, a felt sense that came upon her sometimes, and more and more of late, of knots, one tied to the next, that were not of thread in her hands, but of life itself, made of things she could not hold, a bird's flight, the shape of an olive root, a word seen in the random etches on a stone, all were in her, there in that place where a child had never grown. The soldiers of Tar found her among the olive trees. She sat calmly on her cedar chest, ready for her death. But they did not kill her, only dragged her inside. There, they ordered her to cook and clean for the three stonemasons who would be lodging in her house while the fortress was rebuilt after the grandiose, clean-edged manner of Tar. She knew what would become of her, if she resisted or poisoned the food she served them. And for some reason, she did not herself understand. She knew it was not her time to be killed, that there was something more she needed to finish. Spitting in their food she did do, out of sight. And she refused to house under the same roof, sleeping instead in the winter sheepfold. She used her dowry trunk as a table and began to smell of lanolin and old dung, she was a very efficient housekeeper, having looked after her widowed uncle, mother, and an ailing sister in turn after the death of her husband, helping them with children and hearth and their household weaving, the ideal spinster. Cooking, cleaning, and washing up for three men took only half of her time. Once, she would have spent the rest of it tending the sheep down the hills, thick with oak and wild pistachio. But the men of Tar had slaughtered all the sheep in the village and salted them for their own stores. So she began making an intricate lace hem to still her angry hands. It was an angry hem in kind, with strange, sharp-edged stars and serpents. She didn't know where the patterns had come from. They were not patterns her mother had taught her. She sat for hours under her olive trees, hooking lace and listening at the yoke of her rage listening to the lace in her hands and the earth under her feet for what she should do, for what it was that needed doing. She could see the fortress's wall from her olives. It had long been wild with capers. But all week, men on rope ladders slung down from the fortress's walls had been clearing weeds from between the limestone cracks. Now there was only one caper left— it was around the north side, facing slopes of dry pine forest where cicadas rubbed their bronze wings during the heat of the day. 
When the idea came to her at last, it was far too mad to resist. And so she set out that very night, before there was time to convince herself not to. Thus, she found herself clinging barefoot to the fortress wall at the dark of the moon, her bent fingers and toes dug goat-wise into whatever stony purchase they could find, trying to save that last caper plant. I am too old for this, she thought. The stars of the scorpion were rising. Guards patrolled with torches dipped in olive oil. She wore black as always, and a black scarf over her gray hair. Her legs shook as she found a new dip in the stone and pushed herself higher. The caper was now only a hand's breadth away. It grew in generous cascades with round, succulent leaves and trailing arms. Really, I am too old to be behaving like a girl of twelve. But it was the principle of the thing, and the way it had come into her with its own unbound conviction, giving her limbs a strange and youthful strength. Artie touched the hank of lace around her waist for luck. Then she lurched up the final handspan. Her fingers now brushed the round leaves. She thought she must be very high up by now. The caper had been nearly halfway. Good thing it was so dark. She could pretend the drop behind her was only feet and not a whole steep hillside full of pines. She'd brought a kitchen knife for prying the roots out from between the stones. Now she reached for it, shaking, set it in her teeth, inched, scrambling a little with her nails for a better hold. A fine sight I must be, she thought. A wide-hipped old crone, barefoot on the wall of the fortress of Cush with a blade in her teeth like some pirate's mad grandmother. She almost laughed. Fear and exhaustion made her feel a little drunk, like an evening after sweet mountain wine. The stifled laugh set her knees trembling. She bit into the blade too hard, cutting her tongue, then cursed it for a pimp, a cuckold, and a whore, and the wall too, using the most vulgar words for each. This steadied both her grip and her nerves. There. The caper was before her, at eye level. Her toes felt wet and ached. They must be bleeding. All the better. She'd stain the wall red. A woman's first and last magic. Then light flared below her, and a sudden voice. Halt where you are, and drop your weapon! The voice sounded mildly incredulous and young. Familiar, too. It was the voice of the stonemason's apprentice, the lad she'd been feeding from her own garden and larder this past month, the boy whose clothes and linens she washed weekly with her own and the others, not quite able to break the laws of hospitality and do a poor job. Those laws were very old. There wasn't even any hair on his chin yet. She hated him now for the disbelief in his voice and for his betrayal. She took the knife out of her teeth and tasted blood. How dare you follow the old woman who feeds you as if she were some criminal? She spat. Can't you see I'm busy saving this old caper from the ravages of your masters? Her eyes gleamed a little over keen. He took another step forward with his torch and his dagger. She grinned. Genuine fear moved across his face then. He must think me quite mad or a witch, thought Arati, not losing her blade. Well, perhaps he is right to look at me so. Perhaps after all this time, that is precisely what I am. He swallowed hard and said, Uh, 
A caper? Looking disturbed. All at once the hate went out of her and she pitied the boy. What's that down there? Called a voice from the wall. Torches swept through the dark toward them, catching the wild edge in R.T.'s black eyes, the gleam of her bloody knife. Bare-assed, fucked, and shat, came the silent curses now, but she didn't back down or drop her knife. Damn them. She was just an old woman with a cooking utensil and a fondness for plants. She'd done nothing but make lace and linens and wash them and help raise other women's babies and grandbabies and wash them and wail for the dead and wash them and milk her sheep for cheese since she was a virgin of 15. She developed a vulgar tongue with age and a certain untidy anger, but who wouldn't in a land so often occupied? These were ways to pass the time, to light the way, laughter and rage, both. "'May the moon's owls piss on your wall,' she said, very clear and loud, so as not to be misunderstood. These men didn't speak the language of Kephthira very well. "'Do I look like I'm capable of murdering you all in your beds? I'm just here to save the caper. Now leave me in peace to finish, will you?' There followed a lean, stifled silence. Then someone snorted, and the stonemason's apprentice, red and stammering, blurted, I followed her, my lords, from the house where we're lodging. She crept out at midnight with a knife and made right for the wall. Her leaving woke me, and I followed. I didn't like the look of things, seeing as she had the knife, my lords. Artie changed her mind. She did not pity the boy. The hate returned, searing her. There was too much whimpering in his voice, a dog's desire to please. She spat at him and on the wall and threw her knife far into the pines. The scorpion glittered above, blade-like. The wheeling bear looked on with gleaming eyes. The north star seemed to blink once, and then the soldiers of Tar had surrounded her and were pulling her forcibly down to the ground. Crazy old bitch. The one who bound her hands hissed, ripping the black scarf from her hair and bearing her silver head to the night. An owl passed on wings so pale and silent that only Arati looked up. She heard the crickets singing everywhere. She noticed the man who bound her only peripherally as an unpleasant shape in the darkness. He sounded as though he spoke through many teeth and smelled of burnt olive wood and bronze and days of wine. The prince needs more women in the capital, He's seeking slaves, said another, the one with his spear to her spine. He picked up her headscarf with his dagger and tore it neatly in two. Someone beside him laughed and made a lewd gesture. For working looms, continued the other, laughing too, cloth-making and such like, women's work. This was dismissive, a sneer. She hardly seems worth the trouble of bringing anywhere, old sack, said the first. The older the better, says the prince. Queer appetite's his. Better with the thread, you idiot. And he wants lots. Making a point to his father, he is, with all that red. Will the king even care? Likely not. The old bastard. They walked Arati roughly out of the night's darkness and into the torchlight of the fortress. In the morning, they took her overland to Crania. Seven. The fire grew again, lapping its stone bed. It cast brief shadows across the cold flagstones, the tattered ochre rugs. 
On the women's looms, brilliant tapestries grew, glowing in that fresh surge of flame, all from the red of Zola's divats. It was no good to make them poorly, out of hatred for the new men of Tar. It was better to avoid being beaten or raped. It was better to stay alive. Now and then they found a slave woman hanging from the olive trees by a noose of her own sheets, a woman who had not been able to go on. But most lived in hope of escape, of finding family again, or lived simply for the sake of life, which was a gift. One carpet, warped to the largest floor loom, was already half the length of the room and patterned all over with diamonds and bullhorns in varying shades. A stern, precise woman named Tharn, with a prominent curving nose and black curls that frizzed and slipped their scarf, wove it. Now, among the weaving women, as the singing subsided and the fire blazed again, she paused, staring at those many vermilion threads. There were dry lines from tears down her cheeks. She wiped them and wove again. Silence returned, save for the popping fire, the hush and click of shuttles, the clatter of loom weights, the whir of spinning wool. Lilith had fallen asleep with her head in Zola's broad lap. It was damp where her cheek pressed. Slave women slept in two long rooms off the weaving quarters on beds of rushes and rough linen. Some were kitchen maids or charwomen or sweepers, but by night all gathered to lend a hand with the making of textiles. A simple cypress stool sat beside each bed, and a red clay pot for water, but the women managed to make their corners their own, with small amulets hung on a pin, or a wreath of flowers from the courtyard, or a dove's feather gray as dusk. Nineteen women slept in the room where both Zola and Arati, in opposite corners, made their beds. Another twenty in the room adjoining. The smell was always musky and warm, thick with oil from the lamps, for there was only one window and the walls were heavy limestone blocks. Dread roosted in the rafters at night along with the bats, and R.T. rose very early to be away from it. The dark was always full of stifled sobs. Zola carried Lilith to her own pallet. Her arms and back were strong, and the girl weighed little. R.T. brought a small black pearl of poppy resin from her corner and lit it for a moment, burning it under Lilith's nose. For a dreamless sleep, little dove, she said, and patted the girl's loose, dark hair. Zola pulled a woolen cover over her skinny legs and smoothed her forehead. In the morning, we will give her a tea of cyclamen bulb. She didn't look at R.T. while she spoke, but still at Lilith, her face a small girl's in sleep soft where it had been sharp before. You know how to make it safely, I think. Zola turned as she finished speaking, her eyes very dark, and Arati was struck by the thought that this woman had been loved, very much, and not long ago. A husband would not look elsewhere from a woman like this. Love of life danced in her straight body, under her nails, at the roots of her heavy hair. Even sorrow as big as the sorrow that dreamed across the women's quarters at night could not snuff it, not fully. Ours is a dark country, Arati replied, and the words surprised her. I know its lightless pathways well. The cyclamen grows in the olive grove beyond the courtyard.
I will gather some at dawn when I go for the firewood. This was a strange reply, but Zola took it in like she had taken in that meeting of eyes over Lilith in the corner earlier in the evening. Part of a secret only just remembered, only just known. A kind of riddle. She nodded. Presently, Arati left to stoke the night's fires across the prince's halls. Zola stayed beside Lilith, awake until the constellation of the hunter set in the south before dawn. Then she slept, curled in a crescent halfway around the girl's legs, with a brown cloak over her shoulders. She dreamt of her own children, and woke weeping. 8. Read the beginning, read the end. In blood they make, in blood they mend. Of red from the old language. 9. At dawn that day in autumn, when the men of Tar came, Zola had swum naked in the sea. Even with five children and a hill full of oaks to tend, not to mention the daily rhythms of her life, baking, weaving, mending, washing, nursing, tending, soothing, Zola always rose with the sun, took herself in silence down the narrow footpath through quince trees in between white stones, left her nightclothes in a heap, and swam. That day the sea was rough with the wind that came ahead of a storm. She poured out a little sheep's milk as an offering in the tide. Her breasts floated, gleaming with the iridescence of the day. Salt buoyed them, made them alert and plump and unlined again, seemingly unchanged despite many years of breastfeeding. She loved how the sea made her skin feel endless, part of that much greater body. Her strong legs opening and kicking were flooded with salt and cold. She didn't stay in as long as usual because of the wind. It splashed water into her eyes. She swallowed a mouthful and coughed. She had walked back to the house slowly through the swelling quince trees, watching the sky. It was full of ornate and heavy clouds. There would be a storm by late afternoon, likely. Inside, she wrung her black hair over the hearthstones and stirred the acorn porridge over olive wood coals. She lifted her twin sons from their cradle and set them to drink, one at each breast. They sucked noisily, fists in her wet black hair, and little noses scrunched. Castor with his wrinkled brow, Cole with his smooth, and the traces of cradle cap. She'd make an oil infusion of mullein to rub there later, after she'd brought some of the acorns in and seen to her dyes. It wasn't urgent. One of the children could help her. Perhaps her daughter Essel, who was fourteen and her oldest, or Omer, who was twelve and so patient with his little brothers. Though at present he was still in bed. He was growing like a young oak, and his skinny legs kept him up at night with their aches. More and more he followed his father Oran to the hills during the day, for his home seemed suddenly full of girls. The twins were only a year old and didn't count yet as boys to him. He was growing self-conscious of his own gentleness. Oren tended the sheep with the dogs, ranging them up as far as the next valley in summer when forage was thin. Recently, Omer had started to carve his own shepherd's stick out of a fallen branch. 
Oran was a kind man and loved his wife too much to ever question her morning swims or to complain that it meant his breakfast was a little later than other men's and that his children thought nothing of asking him to put the kettle on if Zola wasn't back when they woke up. The sea gives to me my good spirits and my luck with crimson, Zola would say, and it was true. She worked dawn to dusk in good humor and high energy. The perfect wife, other men said to Oran in the village center, where they often met to smoke their long, amber-mouthed pipes when the sheep and goats were in and the sun was going down. Whenever her nerves began to fray or her mood grew weary, she had only to think of the feeling of the sea on her skin. It is to me what I am to you, she said to her children. That's why I bring it milk. Besides being a good mother, a good wife, and a good housekeeper, Zola was also the most sought-after maker of crimson dye on the entire island of Kefthira. Many women who lived where the Kermes oaks grew, near the sea, on rough hillsides or windy headlands, harvested the Kermes insects who fed on the oak sap and made the red dye too. But nobody's red was as brilliant, as colorfast, or as abundant as Zola's. Oak groves were passed on through the maternal line and had been since the time before the first invasions a thousand years ago. Zola's maternal oak grove was very large and very old. The Kermes insects had always been tended by women. It was, after all, the Kermes mothers whom they harvested after they had died laying their red-stained eggs. The oak groves of Zola's maternal line had always produced the most brilliant crimson. She followed what her mother taught her closely. Much of it involved not the dye recipe or how she loosed the dead Kermes bugs from the bark, but how she treated her trees. And so she gathered their acorns and fed them to her family. Acorns left ungathered on the earth through the winter told the trees that their gifts weren't needed, weren't wanted, and they produced less the following year. None of the other women in the village did so. Acorns were called the food of the poor, since the men from Heladia had come, there had been barley and wheat and rye to sow. Who wanted to eat acorns when they could eat wheats? Zola did, and her trees were the healthiest on the island. And even though the men of Agate and the nomads of Heladia had changed the names of the old gods, Zola practiced the rituals that had been passed down to her without hesitation and without fear. She praised the Kermes mothers as her sisters, she never harmed a single of their eggs. On the longest night of winter, she and her children and her husband and all the sheep and the sheepdogs too filled the oak groves with singing and dancing, with fire and bells, and a whole barrel of dark wine poured onto the earth. Other women had plenty of cause to hate Zola, and a handful did. For the most part, they only envied her from a distance. She was difficult to hate, being too good-tempered and generous and quick to laugh. But after the soldiers of Tar came, and everything changed, the women who had known Zola before felt only shame for their envy and their hate, and shame also at their relief, that after all they were not Zola, and did not possess her oak grove, her cheerfulness, her immaculate hearth, that perhaps so many blessings only court disaster and sorrow, and that it was better to be mediocre and ill-tempered and afraid." That morning, Zola brought a bowl of porridge to her son's bed, rousing him with a low shepherd's tune. The half-carved crook leaned near his pillow. 
Essel and her younger sister Tiln were already up, washing their hair in rainwater from a bucket by the well. She could hear Tiln's chatter like a little bird and Essel's solemn replies. Her eldest daughter had always been stern like that, a small mother. By the time she could walk, she was already tidying up after herself, everywhere she went. Often, when Zola came in from her daybreak swim, Essel would fix her with a look near scorn, the kind of look some of the village women gave her. Women who hadn't stopped to exclaim over the sweet fullness of a pomegranate recently. Women who didn't let those red juices drip off their fingers, but rather cut them with a knife and never stopped to put their weary feet in the sea. Well, Essel. Maybe she would ask her to take Tiln and the twins out into the wood to hunt for mushrooms. There had been enough rain in the last fortnight. Purple crocuses were sprouting up out of the red earth on the ridge. There might be chanterelles. They would be nice for supper. What was girlhood, after all, without such barefoot idols in the early autumn wood, with the light gold and soft and that scent of pine and oak and fallen nuts? Zola saw the girls coming and brought down the gathering baskets from their hooks by the door. Take your sister and the twins to the pine wood to gather chanterelles, will you, my love? She said when Essel came through, her hair very neatly rolled up in a linen cloth. For a moment, Zola saw her as a grown woman, long-necked and long-faced and regal. Very dark, darker than Zola or Oran, dark like her grandmother, with small deft hands and long straight hair she kept as neat as her linens in a braid. She was off to braid it now, with Tiln at her heels like an unkempt lamb and as curly, chattering still. Tiln was ten, all legs and flights of fancy. Just now she was saying something about hermit crabs and the shell of one she'd seen in the tide all covered in algae and how it was that they chose their homes. How she loved their slender, scuttling feet, the way their eyes peered out from inside the darkness and their small, pinchered claws. Yes, mother, said Essel. She looked at Zola's wet hair, which had dripped twin streams down the front of her shirt as she went to braid her own. Though it smells like rain. Mushrooms! Tiln ran to take the baskets from her mother and line them with clean cloth. Come home if it starts, called Zola, though I think it won't till dusk. Oren came in after them for his porridge and ate it in three swallows. He'd been out since before sunup to lead the sheep to water. Now he was off to the eastern ridge with crook and flute and a goat skin of weak wine to bring them to a patch of newly blooming thyme. Omer, lethargic before, was suddenly at his side, dressed and neat-haired. Zola kissed them, her son's boyish cheek with its smell of amber and sun-dried linen, her husband's mouth, rough with beard but always warm, the resin of morning cold on his breath. He palmed her backside as he left, whistling. Isn't your mother beautiful, my boy? Zola let the twins drink themselves fuller, changing breasts for each, then tied Castor to Essel's back and Cole, the smaller, to Tiln's. The girls took gathering knives, a water skin, a twisted cloth of acorn bread and cold sheep cheese. Bring home some crocuses, good Essel, Zola said, kissing her daughter's head when she was finished braiding. Beauty for our table. You have a better eye for such things than I. Essel smiled. The compliment worked. Give the girl a treat disguised as a task and she never argued back. Maybe cyclamens for their sweetness? Essel said, taking one of the baskets. Her eyes were so big and black, thought Zola, much moved far down in them, more than any mother could know.
and for love cakes, added Tiln, to attract true love. I'm making one if you aren't. She pulled her sister's braid and trotted out the door, tickling Cole's feet where they kicked at her back. Come home by noon meal or before if it storms, Zola called after them. The twins will be hungry by then. She spent the next hour in the oak grove gathering acorns. By mid-morning she was sweating from the late summer heat. The cicadas made a sleepy drone. The storm clouds had passed on without opening and the sky was entirely clear. She napped briefly on a cloth under the trees, the oak leaves prickling only a little through the rough weave. Then she went to her dye house, a stone structure at the near edge of the wood, and pulled several skeins from the strongest vat. The smell was of rot. It was a hearty, healthy smell to Zola, and she smiled. The smell of earth was often rot, too, of a thing being turned into something else. The skeins streamed red dye back into their vats. Zola rinsed them in a second bucket and hung them from a line between the dye house and a branch. Pink water dripped onto the ground. Then she went to examine the bark of her trees for pregnant Kermie's mothers. It was their season, but early still. On the first trees she found none. Deeper into the shade, where the cicadas cried out more loudly, she found three, all scattered along one bending limb. The mothers gave their lives for their eggs. It was their last effort, climbing up from the earth to a branch, sucking at the oak sap, producing that crimson which protected their eggs from disease and from any small predator. The crimson seep smelled sharp and resinous. She crouched in the low oaks and said the harvest words, praying abundance upon the eggs, calling the mother Red Moon in the few words of the old language she had been taught. Then she gathered them one by one with her fingertips. They held on tight to the bark even in death. Their carapaces gleamed and stained her hands. Later, Zola could never be certain which came first, the sight of that crimson on her fingers or the sound of men's boots crunching toward her out of silence through the wood. Later, she remembered the two things simultaneously, the dye on her fingers a kind of premonition. Usually the red stains left by the Kermie's mothers reminded her of menstruation. Only on that day did the sight of red make her think immediately of slaughter. Still, she rose to her feet with a steady, slow grace, the copper gathering pot in one hand with its three red carapaces. She smoothed her black apron and her black hair with her free hand, composing herself. Spined oak leaves and an acorn cap fell to the ground. Twenty soldiers of tar surrounded her, spears raised. Kephthira had been in occupied land for her whole life and before, but there had never been soldiers in her oak grove. Blood, the same color as her kermes, stained their swords. Elaborate breastplates and plumed helmets gleamed in the long light through the trees. Oren had heard word in the village that the Prince of Tar had taken the capital from Agat a week past, but this was expected, a kind of political handoff. There had been no further news that any battalions were continuing north of Mount Enos. How had these men come so quickly, and without warning here? Men of Tar, Zola said in a low voice, why are you here in my oak grove? She did not mean to, but it came out a growl. Are you seeking refreshment? 
This had happened now and then with the soldiers of Agat when the people of Kephthira were not inclined to pay their taxes. She did not allow herself to think what other kinds of refreshment these men might seek, nor what kind of blood it was on their swords. We've already availed ourselves, said a sinewed man with very straight teeth. His nose flared when he spoke. Your land has provided much refreshment. Something in his broad eyes made Zola think with a wild, sick lurch of her daughter's. The red stain on the oak tree spread across her lids as she blinked, swallowed, tried to reply. Ah! A croak, with none of her usual strength. Why had one of the villagers not sent word? Were these men so swift, so silent, that no one had seen them? Had they traveled all that way by night? Had they killed any messengers who might have warned them? Oh, mother, oh, gods, where were her girls and the twins? May they be out still in the pine wood. Oh, may the chanterelles be plentiful. May they hide in some deep root. May the twins not cry out. But which way had the soldiers come, and which way would they leave? Mother below, not the pines, not her children. And where was Oran? Why had he and Omer not run to warn her? Why had the dogs not barked from the far ridge? Her thoughts flashed, red and stained, the crimson on the bark, the mother dead across her eggs. She knew then, without knowing how she knew, which way the men had come. Why there had been no barking from the dogs, nor warning from her Oran or her Omer. She looked again at the blood on their spears and couldn't breathe. She knew without evidence and without hope that the blood was her husband's, her son's, and her dog's. What do you want? This came out with more strength, each word spat and not a question. She clung to her copper pot, the little tree where she'd left her harvest prayers, trying not to fall to her knees. We've already taken it, replied the sinewed man. Another flash of straight teeth. Their commander he must be. She noticed as if from a great distance that his plume was red while the rest were white. He spread his hands, indicating the oak grove. Though its oaks were small and ragged by nature, they were robust and spread across the entire valley and hillside overlooking the north-facing cove called Ateras, where the village perched. The oaks? That's what they had come for? Everything, that is, but you, he continued. The women of your village were most obliging directing us here. Orders from the Prince of Tar. He requires a personal dye woman. He means to monopolize the flow of crimson across the White Sea. You, he was told, have the reddest. Your village woman will be happy to provide shipments of the stuff to the royal palace. He requires the capital to be robed in red. You cannot. It was a snarl. No other woman may touch my grove. Only I and my daughters may handle the Kermes. It is an ancient taboo. I would not advise you to break it. Red was the color of women, of birth. It was not the color of soldiers or kings. So her grandmother and her mother had taught her. A snigger passed among the men. Zola saw their faces only vaguely. Undifferentiated, a circle of white teeth and bronze. They were not men, but demons. And she was not a woman, but a bear. She could feel every inch of her own skin and their eyes across it. Her breasts hurt with pent milk for her sons. 
She curled back her lips. We can establish a trade arrangement, nothing more. The words came from elsewhere, between her teeth. She did not have the heart for words. Her husband, her children, her trees. She could smell the smoke now. Was it their house? In her mind, she saw the pomegranate by the low door in flames. You will take neither my trees nor me. It is pleasant to watch you talk, said the commander lazily, flicking a fallen oak leaf from his wrist guard. But we seem to be getting nowhere. He turned to his men. Seize her, and don't enjoy it too much. Not before I've had my bit. Easy on the eyes you are. No wonder the village woman wanted you gone and your trees for their own. There were too many hands and too many spears. They had her before she could move, rubbing at her breasts and her haunches with hot hands, hissing and calling in their own language, dragging her until she was beneath the red-plumed commander who had loosed his pants with the same laziness with which he spoke. The copper pot had fallen from Zola's hand in the struggle, but somehow one of the Kermie's mothers was there still in her palm. She fought, kicking, crushing the carapace into her clenched hand until the red seeped out and dripped on the earth. The commander watched her struggle and smiled. He liked a disheveled woman. He lowered himself toward her. Old words were in her throat. They came from nowhere, from the place where her neck pressed into the red dirt, into the oak leaves and acorn shells. The crimson in her hand felt hot and powerful. She screamed out the words. The sound was full of death and power. They were not her words, not any she had been taught from the few that were remembered. There were bears in them, and serpents large as caves. The oak leaves moved above her. Every trunk dripped vermilion, every trunk bled, and she bled the same dye from her milk-taut breasts and from between her legs where the commander had pushed back her skirt. Not blood, but Kermes. That was enough to terrify them all. And in the slackening of hands, she was saved. She was untouched. She leapt to her feet. Red dye dripped everywhere from her. The Kermie's carapace that had been pressed into her hand was nowhere, not on the ground, gone. On her hand was its mark. She thought of Oran and of Omer, dead under their swords. She thought of Essel. Abruptly, the red was gone, and she was mortal again, standing in a shadow that was not dye but only leaves. Still, beneath her feet, she felt it whatever it was that had given her words. The men of Tar, despite themselves, felt it too. Tie her, snapped their commander, when he could speak. Lust was gone, only disgust now and fear. He tried not to look afraid, but he was for a moment more terrified than he had ever been in his life. The power did not come back into her, though she fought them in their ropes. No one tried to touch her that way again. But someone struck her hard across the brow. Then there was nothing but darkness and a stain of crimson spreading across her eyes. Ten. Lilith swallowed the tea of cyclamen bulbs without a word when Arati handed it to her in a clay cup over the women's sunrise meal. They ate out in the walled courtyard in fine weather, and it was a warm October day. White crocuses with yellow tongues pressed up along the footpath that led out into the olive grove where Arati and the palace's other charwomen gathered firewood from tall stacks under wooden shelters. 
Soon, men would bring the piles in, but for now, the early autumn sun continued to cure them. The mauve-flowered cyclamens sprang up around the bases of the oldest trees in shade. Their upblown petals made small vortices of perfume. Pregnant women knew the danger of stepping over those flowers in bloom, and kept well away for fear of miscarriage. Lilith had watched her mother do the same, but she had miscarried even so, and more than once. Lilith had seen the blood. It scared her, but then she had been a child, and had known nothing worse than a goat at slaughter under the shepherd's skillful hands. Now, she drank Arati's clay cup of bitter tea and was not afraid, though Zola had whispered to her at dawn of its purpose and effect, how her own blood would clean her. Swallowing, she tried not to think of Alsace, of Spiros, of Vries, but failed. Mostly she saw Vries, the dagger in his shoulder and blood in his teeth, and the amber eyes of the dog gone dark and death beside him. She would do anything to be clean of what had happened there, and the guilt she felt at its happening. Foolishly thinking herself a lucky charm when she was anything but. How she had forgotten that final time to pray. She would do anything to be cleaned of the touch of the men of Tar, but she feared she could not be. She drank more quickly. Even if she died of it, she didn't mind. Better than the dreams that split her every night. Better than the sickness in her belly. Better than the memory of her mother's voice lifted up with her hands to the moon. She ate only a bite of the barley porridge and a swallow of sheep's milk. Already the tea was starting its work, sickening her. She looked a woman again in the strengthening light of morning and not a child as she had in sleep. A sharpness sat around her, and some of the other women eyed her almost with fear. Her face had that cast to it, pointed as bat wings. The early sun played odd tricks, and for a moment a horned moon lay in shadow over her black brows. More than one of the women saw this, and later they whispered over their oak wood looms. Was she the Lady of Beasts? Our virgin of the wood, huntress and keeper, come to test them? Come to avenge her lost maidenhead upon the men of Tar? Would it be best to keep their distance and save their own if it came to it, or treat her as a hidden goddess with all the kindness in them, and earn her blessing? But that was foolish, Vela cut in. There were no goddesses and no gods. So the Prince of Tar ruled, and so it was. What goddess had looked out for them? The fallen, the spoils of war. Lilith might be a witch and dangerous in her ways, but surely there was no lady, no huntress, no moon or they would be with their husbands and their children still, their lands and their bodies, unbroken. The women talked on over their work, and the sun reached noon. By then, Lilith lay limp upon her pallet with a seep of red across the rags between her legs. In it was a tiny child no bigger than a pea who passed away unseen, fish-like in his nature still, and mostly dream. Arachi wiped at the sweat on the girl's cheeks and forehead with a rosemary-soaked cloth. She'd pressed a poultice of crushed yarrow inside the girl because she couldn't keep any tea down. The bleeding slowed at last. The pulse under Arati's fingers quivered, then settled. Lilith slept. The old woman cleaned the blood from between her thin legs. Later, Zola would come. Now she was at her dyes by the prince's decree and seeing to the girl spinning besides. The blood that pooled from Lilith was its own dark country spreading across the rags. Something moved in it, a vision. Stones and water and great terrifying depths. 
Archie sat back. Coxon cuckolds, but I'm getting old for this, she said aloud, and made herself hoot a little with laughter. It had been a while since she laughed, since that climb up the wall for the caper. She looked down again into the drying blood and saw stones with secret hollows below them lapped by sea. She knew that place. It was at the bay's harbor, just beyond Crania's walls. The swallowing stones. That was what they'd been called when Arati was a girl. A place of potency in the old days, dangerous to visit, at night or in winter, for fear of what their darkness compounded might take from you without your knowing. A place where women left offerings to the underground, and only women. For into those hollows the tide went, but did not return. Swallowed with a lap and echo like some inverted bell, the opposite, the empty spaces ringing out instead. The old ways taught that the water thus swallowed traveled under the island in hollows and rivers through the limestone. It traveled entirely in darkness for all the moon's waxing, new to full. Then it emerged in the bottomless lake on the furthest eastern edge of Kephthira, there above the city of Samos. Bottomless because its bottom was the whole labyrinthine underside of the island, its lightless passages where only water and darkness knew the way. How anyone knew this, the unseen movements of water in that black and the precise place of its reemergence, no one could say for certain, as with all the oldest tales. But Arati remembered her grandmother's words by some smoking olive wood fire in the stone house up the flank of Mount Enos where she lived all her days, speaking in secret to her sheep so they produced milk of surpassing sweetness, collecting carefully the cyclamen bulbs in autumn for the girls who might come to her in need. Her grandmother had said, In the caves they burned laurel leaves and the resin of the poppy and saw inside the earth. Do not doubt that women have traveled there with the parts of themselves that can fly free of the body. Do not doubt that the stories are true and that a woman's soul has floated down in darkness in a laurel leaf for all the moon's waxing until she reached the other side. What do you imagine birthing a child entails or burying a lover? That lore was old and nearly forgotten by the time Arati's grandmother told her this. It had been old two hundred years before, when the men of Agate first took the cities of Kephthira. It had been lost long before that to the men of Haladia. It was easy enough to change the words for things, the hymns sung out at shrines, but harder to change what sat beneath the names and the stones and the memories of women, the women left behind when the men were killed. It was well and good to be a hero for a day, but heroes do not remain like wives do, who are never called heroes, though they have kept what might have been lost from going, hidden there between linens in the cedar trunk or out in the fields as a word whispered to the budding olive. But why she, old Arati, should see a vision of those holes in the stones at the edge of Crania's harbor was not immediately clear. She finished cleaning the blood and watched Lilith as she dreamed, her forehead brown and clear. Magic worked obscurely. She could wait to understand its meaning. Something was moving earthwise, in Lilith's bat-like face, in Zola's red-stained hands, and herself, too. That was all she knew, but she knew it surely, at last.
Grandmother? The girl croaked, reaching for Arati. New cramps racked her. Arati was quick with a tea of viburnum bark now and the leaves of yarrow. Sitting up to drink woke Lilith sufficiently that she said, Why do you let that lace of yours go black with soot? Because the dark hank was in Arati's lap, a lengthening coil which never seemed to be far from her hands. Its sturdiness had been bothering Lilith all through her delirium and even her pain. A white snake it was, rolled in soot, a seam of light blackened. It was now as long as three women worked on a needle-fine hook in patterns of star and horn and lunar eye, traditional protections from evil. Such a band was usually made to go about the hems of skirts, at cuffs and necks, all the openings in a garment so that no evil could slip in. But there was something odd about Arati's lace to Lilith's eye, the kind of weirdness only the fevered notice or women in their bleeding. In her sickened dreams, she seemed to be washing and washing out the soot, but the lace wouldn't come clean and the black covered her hands and the hank became a real snake, white as the snow that fell but rarely on the top of Mount Enos. It coiled and coiled around her belly until it seemed to vanish into her. Now, awake, sipping at the tea, Lilith saw the lace idle and limp in Arati's lap and was relieved. Magic's a strange business, Dovey, replied Arati after a silence, thinking of stones and of blood. She patted Lilith's arms with warm, bent hands. You have to be willing to feel about in the dark, otherwise it's a danger and not a gift. I listen for it and let my hands do its bidding. So it seems I'm doing with the lace and the soot. But what is it? Who's bidding? Lilith's dark eyes were darker for the pain, but also bigger now with interest. Was it magic her mother had taught her in the cave of Drakina? Magic or just women's matters, keeping what might be lost alive? Was it magic her mother had done over her father's fishing nets with her deft hands, or just care? Was there any difference? And that feeling Lilith sometimes had known as a young girl. And again with the shepherd bandits, was it magic too? A wild freedom in all her limbs, a glee at moving and living, the sense that the water slipping down its stream, the olive leaves silver in rain, the hawk circling with sun on his wings, all were in her, of her, or she of them, and she knew each from a knowing outside herself, and yet also inside, what it felt to be the olive leaf slick with rain and the wheeling hawk and the water running and running without fear and without end until the sea. All at once she remembered the cause of her delirium and the blood that had left her. She looked, but Arati had taken away the rags. There was only a trickle now caught in Yarrow. Whatever the men of Tar had put in her, it was gone, though she could feel something else there still, something intangible, well, replied Arati, watching Lilith's face, the pattern beneath the pattern, a thing felt but not seen. You take my meaning, I think, though you can't know it in your thinking or by the clear light of reason. It makes the flax grow and the barley, but it isn't summer, no. It's more root than that. The pattern beneath the pattern, and it has nothing to do with kings. The old woman snorted. Thankfully, the shitting bastards. Then without ceremony, she lit a little hand-packed cone of amber resin and leaves of thyme. Lilith, Lilith, laughing at the old woman's vulgar outburst and surprised at how good it felt to laugh, settled down to sleep once more.
That evening, Zola and Arati wove twice as diligently as usual to make up for the girl's absence. There was enough cloth now for a new wall hanging in the feast hall and curtains for the prince's bed. Fresh sails for his ships were almost finished, all crimson, just as bright as wounds. When two serving men rolled a barrel of dried Kermie's mothers from Ateras into the women's quarters and left them by Zola's vats, she kept her face still and unmoving. But when they were gone, she wept. For the little mothers, for the eggs beside them that the women were harvesting, despite the taboos, despite all the promises she had made to her oak forest. She wept for her children and her husband, and the weeping was the kind that sears, too deep almost for tears. Three nights later, Lilith rejoined them. She was very pale. She sat near Arati, spinning slowly, her spindle skittering back and forth on the floor. Zola stood hunched over her dye vat, peering into its red. The steam was making words. In a season, maybe two, we may be no more, the husked insects whispered to her from their vat. Our children may be no more, gone from your forest, gone from your trees. We may remain only in this, our crimson. By the time your daughters are women, we may be gone from all the trees of Kephthira. Help us, mother. Help us, daughters of Ateras. Things like this often wafted up from Zola's dye vats as she stirred them, adding the necessary ingredients, fat of a hedgehog, eelgrass, a single handful of sheep dung, and said the ancient words, auguries, sudden words of truth. Word that the Kermes were dying made her sick but did not surprise her. But this sudden image of her daughters made her stop altogether and stare down into the pot, searching desperately in its whirls of oil and red and steam for the faces of her children. Was this a truth spoken by her oaks, or a longing only? Could they be alive, somewhere safe and hidden? She made a little cry and staggered back, trying to breathe for the sickness of hope that racked her. <laughs> 